You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together again in this morning hour. Thank you for the good word that we've heard and for feeding us in those holy mysteries. And I pray that now as we center our thoughts for the last time around Karl Barth's legacy on reading the Bible, that you will give us insight and understanding that will propel us on to our own sort of lives of reading the word before your face. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I was so buried, and I know some of you have kind of come in and out on this series, but they're they're all rather ad hoc. Um, I I was buried again this week in sort of thinking through some of the issues with Karl Barth in his preface to his commentary on Romans. So I want to talk about that for a little bit because it taps into, um, is that? Oh, thank you. We, we'll close the door to the ark. It's, um, that's to keep my children out, I think. Uh, that was, that's, not, that's not true. Um, anyway, so if you remember last week, I tried. I introduced our, our topic by, by, by rehearsing for you this long exchange that Karl Barth had with a colleague of his that taught an Old Testament, a, na- a man named Walter Baumgartner. And they were firing shots at, sort of against one another, toward one another, regarding what it means to read the Bible. Um, what, what, what's, what's a scientific approach to reading the Bible? That, that was the question. Um, and this is, this is, I, I would, th- I mean, it's kind of funny. This is over almost a hundred years ago now. This exchange is going on. Um, but, but the, the substance of the issues that were being addressed between Baumgartner and Karl Barth remain with us to this day. Namely, what is the Bible? What is it? And how does its, here I'll coin a phrase here, how does its whatness, its being, how does what we understand the Bible to be pressure us in our approach to actually reading it? Now I'm going to say that again because that was not very well articulated. Um, the Bible is something and the Bible does something, right? The Bible is not a mirror of ourselves. The Bible's not a wax nose that we can kind of move toward our own ends and purposes. The Bible is other than us. It's different than us. And it is something. And our confession of faith regarding what the Bible actually is um, pressures us and forces us to think about what methods we bring when we actually start to read and interpret the Bible. And as you think about the sort of intellectual move of biblical studies in the modern period from really being a churchly ecclesial function into the academic life of the university. Um, and this, this started, I think, in a profound way in the early 18th century in Germany at a university called the University of Göttingen, which was uh, there kind of in the Hanoverian region of Germany. And they had a biblical studies department where the key figure and teacher was a man by the name of Johann David Michaelis was his name. Apparently, he was an incredible figure. He would walk into class. Um, he, he was, you know, one thing I did sort of learn being in 
the world of sort of German higher education is you know aristocrats go into the life of teaching you know middle class like I, I would have never gone into the life of teaching I would I would have been laying bricks you know in the uh, in the 18th century um, so aristocrats go in so he was he was a baron and an heir or he had some sort of official title and would walk into class with a sword on his hip now, that's cool I think that I I'd like to try that at some point and I have a few I have a few students in mind not really um, they walk anyway. Mickey Alice taught the Old Testament um, like um, one would teach the classics of Rome and ancient Greece. In other words, Rome had its uh, Virgil. Greece had its Homer. And the Bible has its Moses. All of these, in other words, Israel becomes a species of a classic civilization like Rome, like ancient Greece, and that's why we teach this particular uh, uh, literature, literary deposit of the Old Testament because that's for the same reasons that we teach the Aeneid, for the same reasons that we teach the Odyssey and the Iliad. That's why we that's why we teach the Old Testament. And as you see that move into university life, where the approach and the focus of study becomes a historical document that witnesses to an ancient civilization. Now, all of a sudden, our understanding or university academic understanding of what the Bible is, it's a historical document first and foremost. And as a historical document, that then pressures us to read it in overly historicist ways. That, that is the dominant approach to biblical studies. And when we get into Advent season or when we move into Lent and Easter and you flip on CNN or the Discovery Channel or the History Channel and you saw, see the talking heads um, on there, and I don't mean to disparage them. I learn a lot from these talking heads. But when you see the Jesus Scholar people or the Old Testament Israel people, they're by and large working with those same fundamental instincts about the interpretation and the approach to the Bible. The Bible is first and foremost a historical document. So here Karl Barth is sort of leaning against his colleague in the theology faculty there, Walter Baumgartner, and saying, well, but we need to think about the Bible in broader terms than that. And it dawned on me this week in my own sort of reading and preparing for this morning and for some other things that I'm doing that this is a this this particular facet of Bart's understanding of the Bible goes back to the bombshell book that he wrote in the early 20th century on a, a commentary on the book of Romans that really shaped the whole conversation but this is going to sound like such hyperbole but it's true shaped the whole conversation of continental um, um, theology in Europe for the 20th century as as a big statement this book, I mean, I, I've written some books. I'm going to tell you what's depressing. Here's a depressing moment for, for anyone who spends time doing this stuff. Um, I remember when I was doing my PhD work, walking through the stacks of the library at the University of St. Andrews and seeing all of these books there, realizing that I'm giving, you know, three years of my life to produce a slim volume that's going to go right there. And who cares, right? I mean, I've, I've had this sort of existential moments. Like a lot of effort goes into this for something that my mom and dad will say, "Nice job, you know, way to way to go." So very few books that are written change a big conversation. Very few, right? And very few. And this is I should, don't repeat any of this. But and very few books are really worthy to be read from beginning to end. And I, I say that about my own, right? So I mean, it's, it's, very few are worthy of that. But Karl Barth writes a book, a, a, comment, a, a commentary, no less, on a biblical book 
that changes the conversation of theology in the whole of the 20th century. It's remarkable, actually. And this commentary was a commentary in the book of Romans, and you know the story. The story was Karl Barth becomes a pastor. In the crisis of his pastoral ministry, he didn't know how to preach. He didn't know how to say, thus saith the Lord. And in his own words, he says, I thought I might give the Bible a try on this to see if maybe that's the place to go. And he says he sat under an apple tree with with, um, Paul's epistle to the Romans in one hand and a notebook in the other. And all of a sudden, Bart was brought into a world that completely shocked him and overwhelmed him. So he writes a commentary on the book of Romans. And it's a commentary that's really um, written for pastors and for preachers and for theologians. It's not written. Its target audience was not um, university chairs in New Testament studies at the University of wherever. That wasn't his target audience. But of course, when a book like that has the splash that it does, university professors want to talk about it. And they didn't want to talk about it in very happy ways. So there was a gentleman by the name of Adolf Ulicker who was without doubt the leading New Testament scholar in Germany at the time. And he wrote a scathing review of Karl Barth's um, epistle to the Romans. I mean, it's one of those reviews that you feel it and it's hot on the paper, right? Um, a scathing review. And, uh, and of course, um, Barth reads all these reviews and there were a lot of reviews that were generated, but Ulicker was, was without doubt probably the most pointed and the most famous of the critical reviews of Bart's first edition to his commentary of the Romans. Well, guess what happens to books that sell real well? They go from a first edition into a second edition. And there were some significant changes that Bart made as he moved from the first edition to the second edition. But one of the lasting legacies of that second edition to his commentary on the Romans is his preface. Matter of fact, I'm teaching a history of interpretation class next spring, and I've just sort of, it, it was, it dawned on me this week, I'm going to require the students to read this. This is going to be part of our reading. It's Karl Barth's preface to the second edition of his Romans commentary. Why is it worth reading? Because there Barth responds to his critics, right? He's, he's got some critical reviews, he's got some blood on the floor, and now it's Barth's turn to respond to his critics. And this is what he says. A couple of things that he says, I had to step back and go, you're the man. I would never say that in print, but, you know, good for you. One thing he says is, um, I'm not really concerned if the scholars of the day don't appreciate my book. This, this is a pretty, I, this is maybe borders on the arrogant, all right? Bart, Bart says, but I'm not worried about that. This book has time to wait. Now, that's a pretty telling statement. And I think it's actually pretty prescient on his part to recognize Given the intellectual instincts of the guild, right, of the academic theologians, this is going to sound like Chinese to many of them. But that's okay, right? There, there's, there's an audience that's waiting for this book in time. And that certainly has proven to be true in the case. The second thing that he does, though, is to go right after the critical concerns that um, Ulicker raised in his uh in his, you know, very strident um, critical review and book review. And this is what Bart says, and it's, it's a famous couple of paragraphs in this preface. He says, number one, critical scholars um, do a wonderful job of helping us get out of the gate of understanding the Bible. Because, see, Ulicker in his review had said that Bart was an enemy of historical criticism. Or maybe another way of saying that is, Bart was an enemy of 
of the um, achievements of what university academic approaches to the Bible had achieved. He was an enemy of that, and they called him that. And Bart said, I am no enemy of the historical project of reading the Bible. Matter of fact, I learn an enormous amount from it and receive it gratefully when it comes to understanding what the text is, is, uh, is saying in its original language, maybe in its historical setting. I'm very grateful. He said, but here is my... And this is where he begins to press back. But the commentaries that are written by academic commentators, and some of you may have felt this because I bet some of you have read commentaries like this. The commentaries that people write are really just first steps to commentaries, not a commentary. Because all you're telling me about is textual details and the background of the text itself. I'm going to give you an example of this, and, and I won't say names. I won't say names. But if I did, you'd know some of them. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, there's, there was a standard uh, commentary on Luke that was viewed as the sort of um, benchmark commentary on Luke. Came out in a, in a standard series. If I said the name, you figured it out. anyway. Um, by a scholar whose evangelical bona fides were without question. This is this is a he's a. I actually spent some time with this man in at a Burger King. I mean, he's with the Lord now. At a Burger King in Waverly Station in Edinburgh. I just kind of worked. It was weird. Um, I asked him how his wife was doing. He told me she was dead for a few years. It was awkward. It was an awkward moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a true story, actually. Um, so, uh, so the, I, I remember in seminary. So I'm, I, I've got to, I've got to save up my coins. I've got to buy this this commentary. And I remember buying it and going home and opening it and thinking, this is so incredibly learned. Um, the the engagement with textual critical matters, the understanding of the complexities of Greek syntax and and and, and lexicography. I'm just oh, so overwhelming, and I have no idea what Luke is saying. And this is what Bart's concern was. These are first steps to conversations about the text. But if you don't press through to what Paul is talking about, then you've not engaged the text in any exegetically responsible way. It's one thing to talk about Paul in his historical world. It's one thing to talk about Paul's language in the Greek and the syntax and the textual critical matters. All that can be very helpful. But that's step number one. The problem with Euliker and his crew was, not only was that step number one, that's the final project of an approach to exegeting the Bible. And this is where, and it's a famous line, um, I can see it right, Bart, Bart says, the historical critic needs to be more critical. That's what he says. You need to be more critical. He says, and then he, and then he draws from the tradition. Think about John Calvin. Here's John Calvin, the man of the 16th century, who by all of the tools that he has available to him, whatever tools they are, you've got your lexicons and your commentaries and your... People ask me all the time, I, I need some help on reading the Bible. I say, go and find a good study Bible. You know, find a, the ESV study Bible, the New Zondervan study Bible. It's very good. Read those notes. Now, it's good to remind people and myself included, that the inspiration stops right where the footnotes begin. That's a good thing to remember. Um, but, you know, get, get all the help you can, right, for reading the Bible. And this is what, what Bart says. Calvin would use whatever tools were available to help him understand those words in that text. But Calvin would have never thought that once he had worked on that, that the task was now done. He says, watch Calvin. 
the man of the 16th century who wrestles with the biblical text so that the first century world of Paul and the 16th century of world get caught in this vortex around the subject matter of God's own triune and saving identity. And now all of a sudden the walls dividing the first century from the 16th century become opaque. Because Calvin's pressing through the text to its subject matter. And for all of Bart's critics, what they say to him is, well, the subject matter is the historical Paul. His consciousness, his psychology, the, the social context of his world. That's the subject matter of a book like Romans. And this is, I think, Bart's brilliant response. The Apostle Paul has no interest in telling you about himself. In fact, we're kind of hard-pressed for Paul to tell us a lot about his own psychology on matters. Um, and when you've noticed when you studied Paul, when Paul's forced to talk about himself, he never likes it. He's like, you've put me in a corner. My apostolic credentials, think Second Corinthians, my apostolic credentials are on the line. You don't really think I'm an apostle. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my, I'm going to give you my CV. I'm going to give you my resume. I'm going to let you know my apostolic credentials. I've suffered. I've been beaten. I was shipwrecked. I'm really, really concerned for the church. And I saw Jesus face to face. And I, I, and then remember what Paul says? And I feel like a fool telling you this. Okay. Um, Paul, and I think Bart's onto something. Paul's not interested in pointing any apostolic finger toward himself. When he does do that, he's only doing it in service of the gospel. That's it. Why? Because um, Paul is witnessing to the living Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the gifts that the critical project has given to us for understanding the words and the context of the Bible, Bart says, that is a first step toward pressing through the text to having, and here's a key word from Bart, an encounter with the living God. An encounter with the living God. Um, so he goes on. And uh, the gloves are off now, obviously, in Bart's response. The historical critic needs to be more critical. He also does something which is a kind of classic scholarly move. Um, and, and it's, and Bart could do this, okay? I mean, he just had, he had the intellectual goods to do it. Well, what's the move? The move is to question the range of intelligence of your, of your, retra- your detractors. Um, and that's what he does. I mean, I, he, he could do this. I mean, there's stories about, um, so Bart in the classroom, um, having people sort of, ch- like a, a, apparently a classics professor from, from Basel was challenging him on his reading of a particular Latin text. And Bavar Child said he, there was a big map of, of Israel and the Dead Sea in the back of the, of the lecture hall. And he said he watched Carl back, worked that, Carl Bart, worked that man back into the Dead Sea, right? Um, and so he just, he had a, he had a wide ranging mind, he had a capacious mind. And what he says is, the critical scholar needs to have a wider intelligence. That's his terms. They need to be able to think beyond their own instincts, scientifically speaking, and to have a wider range of intelligence that can think beyond the confines of their own discipline. That's very trendy today, by the way, in academic circles. In academic circles today, everything's about being interdisciplinary. Everything is. Let's, let's get an English professor and a law, a law professor and a divinity professor together to talk about Homer. I mean, this stuff's going on at Stanford all the time. Let's get together and talk about Cicero. It's great fun. But back in the day, academic departments tended to live in their isolated universe, and especially in Germany and Switzerland when you had to make an appeal to the Minister of Education for getting funding for your department. Why do you, why should you even exist? 
Um, so there was a lot of territorial, you know, uh, marking out in that period. And here Bart says, you need to have a wider a range of intellectual interests than merely the historical. And then he goes to what I think is the heart of Bart's concern. And this is, and I'm paraphrasing him, but this is what he says. Adolf Euliker and all your cronies, do any of you think about preparing people for the pulpit? Do any of you consider that? Is that on your horizon as part of your task as being a professor? I think, I mean, this kind of blows our hair back in a theology department. Now, you have to remember in the German system and in the system in Switzerland, there weren't standalone seminaries like Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary or Fuller Theological Seminary. There weren't standalone seminaries. All preparation for local church ministry life was done in the context of the theology schools and the universities. Tübingen, Munich, Marburg, Erfurt, I mean, the list goes on and on, but they had their own theology departments that were serving the church. So this is where, this is where the pastors are getting taught to handle the Word of God. And Bart's saying, are you thinking about that? Are you considering that? And then he gives them a testimony from his own intellectual history. Bart says, I remember being a student, and this is his phrase, and standing before the awe of history. That's what Bart says only to then go into the pulpit and have nothing to say. right? Um, so I think this is a real challenge, and I think it's part of Bart's legacy, to my mind, is um, not thinking in binary and brittle terms. That's what I want to sort of leave with you today. I want to talk about Job, and maybe, maybe we will in a second. But, but th- this is what his legacy is for me. Bart was very quick to say to Adolf Euliker, I'm not an enemy of historical criticism. Or maybe another way of putting that is, I'm not an enemy of historical approaches to reading the Bible. Um, and I don't want to be either. I mean, in the sense that I have so much to learn from Greek lexicons. I have so much to learn from reading about the first century world. I have so much to learn about understanding the geopolitical realities of the Amri dynasty in 8th century um, northern Israel. I, mean, I have so much to learn by reading about that. But here's Bart saying, but in your approach to the Scriptures, that has its place. But it cannot be the whole task. It cannot be. All of those tools, and this is not Bart's language, this is Genlet here. All of those tools need to be servants in use of a higher aim. They're servants. Use them, make responsible use of them, be careful how you use them, but make whatever use you need to of them, but don't think that that's the end task. Those are servants on the way to another destination. And what is that destination? That destination is an encounter with Jesus in the reading of Holy Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, well, let me see, what time is it? Um... Okay, let me stop. You want to ask questions? Well, let's let's bat this around. Uh, you angry about anything? Want to want to want to push into it? What? Any any questions you want to ask about this, Don? So uh, one way of looking at scripture is in historical analysis. Of it. Yeah. Some of the others may not be part, but what are some of the other major ways that scripture is looked at today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think you know we we were I was at a conference this past week. Um, in Nashville with the North American Lutheran Church in a sort of roundtable discussion on on the theological character of the Old Testament. And this was the question that was raised. Where is the guild now? We are in kind of a post-critical, post-modern-y moment 
where overly historicist approaches to reading the Bible that still dominate biblical studies as a guild has sort of given way to, I mean, just think about, just think about the, the public and social context of the conversation going on politically right now in our world. You can take so much of that kind of identity politic and move that right into the ways in which people are approaching scripture whether it's primarily kind of through a feminist lens, whether through it's a post-colonial lens, whether it's through a sort of a, what they would call a sort of a queer gay lens. I mean, there, there are multiple approaches that will take an ideology that then becomes a sort of driving force for reading text. And if you want to kind of see what that looks like, go online sometime when the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the big guild meeting of Bible scholars every year, I go to it every year as part of my purgatory, I think, um, and and just read what some of the sessions are. Um, that's there's there's It's fascinating. So I would say th- those are some of the major approaches that have gone on now, more, more sort of ideologically so driven. Proof texting for your own... Well, I, I, I mean, I have to be careful about that. I mean, there... I don't know if I call it yes in a sense, but it's it's a recognition um, that we all bring a certain kind of interpretive structure to texts. I think we do do that. Now, remember, I mentioned I don't know if it was in here that I mentioned this, but um, you know I was with my my children uh, years ago, no, three years ago now. Two of them were willing to go with me to the top of the Eiffel Tower, right? So boom, we go up there. And it moves, by the way. It's not, it's, 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 yeah. Um, so you're up there and you're looking down and you know what it looks like when you're up there? It looks like the whole of Paris has been organized architecturally around the Eiffel Tower. I mean, everything just sort of moves out. There's the Zine and then the, 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 the streets that go around. It's like, how, they, they built Paris around the Eiffel Tower and we all know they didn't, right? It's a, it's a construct that's there that frankly could be moved to another place that then would allow us to see Paris from a different view. I mean, th- there is some truth to the fact that we, we do bring, wittingly or unwittingly, certain kind of interpretive apparati to the reading task, right? But I think where we sort of come in from a Christian standpoint is to say, yes, we do do that, and we confess that to be true. We don't apologize for that. But the apparatus that we're bringing is an apparatus that's kind of driven, we believe, by the biblical material itself and an understanding of the God rendered there. And that's the apparatus that we're bringing. And that, that's what, I'm not, in other words, it's circular, the reasoning that I'm making, but I don't think it's viciously circular. I think that's the kind of distinction there. Coffin. Just as an aside, if you, if you grab a Oxford Annotated Study Bible, yeah. there's a very good section in the back that goes through a great deal of the methods of biblical <laughs> interpretation. Oh, yeah. Starting from the very earliest up through this article. Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. What, uh, when you said at one point the, they were proud of their achievements in the historical interpretation, the historical reading of the Bible, what would they consider that? What, what do they consider achievements? Uh, a deeper understanding of the social and historical context and causes that led to textual effects. I think that's, that's a way of maybe construing it. In other words, what, what were the historical circumstances that gave rise to the Apostle Paul writing a book like Romans. Or let me deal with my world in the Old Testament, right? Um, Why is it that the tent of meeting in one place in the Pentateuch is in the center of the the, uh, camp, and in other places the tent of meeting is supposed to be outside the camp? Why is it okay to worship in Shiloh here and it's it's forbidden here? I mean, all of these sort of difficult textual issues that one has to wrestle with... um, 
sources, background, historical context have been clues and keys for many of these critical scholars to unlock these textual problems. Um, and again, I don't dismiss all of that. I, I'm, I'm trying to be nuanced myself here. I don't dismiss all of those achievements. The point is, where does one place them in the larger intellectual project? And I think that's that's the, the issue. Um, but our advances in understanding of the Hebrew language, um, of the Greek language, I mean, my... My students, I don't know if they have access to this or not, but I mean, there, there are pro, there's a program called TLG, um, that is a, an electronic program that's linked to every Greek text that we know. We're talking Plato, Aristotle, Xenophon, Sophocles, I mean, everything that we have. And you can plug in your word that Paul said one time. Here it is. Paul uses the word one time. He doesn't use it anywhere else. How are we going to know what that word is? Slap that thing into TLG. 350 references come up from Plutarch. To, and it's, it's amazing the kind of discoveries that have been made. I don't, I don't want to diminish that at all. I don't want to diminish that. Those are important. So when I say achievements, I'm not being dismissive of that. I think they're, they're enormous achievements, and, I'm, and I make use of them all the time and make my students buy expensive books to deal with it. Um, but, but the point, I think, is how does one conceive of those tools within a larger theological task? We don't believe the Bible is primarily an ancient document. I think we believe that the Bible, it is that, but it's primarily a youthful word that's immediately present by the presence of the Spirit who ministers Jesus Christ to us. That's a very different way of construing what our interpretive goal is. I think that's the point. We have a different interpretive goal. When we get off the highway at our destination, we're hoping to encounter the living Lord. I think the historical critic wants to get off the highway and encounter ancient Israel. Or, or the historical Jesus on the road to Palestine buying falafel on whenever. I don't know if they did falafel back then, but I, I hope they did. It would have been the better for it. Any other questions? Yeah, Stokes. And then, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, you keep raising yeah, Matthew. No. Go ahead. I mean, not to jump off too far, but I know World War II kind of wrecked the German Academy in a lot of ways. What was the effect on biblical studies as well? I mean, philosophically, I know it, it threw them for a loop. Yeah. What did it do? Well, I think there was, was, a, it, was, the there was a, in, in many good ways, actually, after World War II, there was a birth of deep theological interest in the Bible. And that was a good thing. I mean, you have figures like Walter Zimmerli and Gerhard von Rad and I, I mean, you have figures on the far side of World War II um, that thought deeply about the theological implications of the Bible. Now, I have my reservations about how they how they actually did that task on certain, but but there was a deep interest in that, and there still is today. I mean, when I was in Germany, there there are two Old Testament professors. One was Reinhard Kratz, the other was Hermann Spiekermann. Spiekermann is a man that's thinking about the Bible and God. We're talking about a German university theological setting right now. I asked him one time, I, this has to get edited, by the way, but I asked him one time, I said, Professor Spiekermann, what is Kratz? He's the, he's the other Old Testament guy. What's, what are his theological interests? And he said, theological interests? He believes in nothing. That's what he said, right? <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's a divide. It can be a divided world. Yeah. Yes, sir, I'm sorry you were patient. Oh, I was just curious. Oof. Um, Brevar Childs' introduction to the Old Testament of Scripture, which was written in the late 1970s, generated over 70 reviews. Um, it, was, it was a game changer, I think, in the realm of Old Testament studies. Maybe not comparable to what... 
And I would actually say that, that Childs' introduction to the Old Testament is itself a product of the, of the Bart Revolution. I, was um, I mean, now, I, don't, I can't think of anything yet. Do you think of anything? I wouldn't know. Oh, I'm just, I'm just, I, don't know. I, don't, I can't think of anything yet. Um, but I'm, I'm going to give some thought to that. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Bart um, engages the book of Job, and it's fascinating. So that's it on that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you um, for your kindness to us, and, and Lord, thank you for um, the joy that it is really to kind of uh, um, think hard thoughts and feel deep feelings for you. Don't, don't let us put those on the anvils, Lord, of a false dilemma. Help us to, help us to hold uh, thinking hard for you and loving you deeply together. Let this be a church that's marked in that way, and let it shape our families and our communities, and let it shape, Lord, the recesses of our own hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.